Hey, good morning, Renew. Um, I think all of us have heavy hearts this morning as we think about George Floyd, as we uh, look at the riots, the protests going on around the country, and all the uh, the chaos ensuing. Um, wanting change, wanting the system to be better, uh, wanting people not to to get shot um, in their homes while running, um, while being arrested. And, and we just, as a church, want to speak into that. We want to um, think about it, pray about it, and ask how we can um, petition to the Lord in in hoping in him. And so this service, we've, we've really kind of moved into two parts. Um, we'll be doing worship together and then hearing from our brother Eugene over video and and entering into a space of prayer and shepherding. Jonathan Whitmore's here, and we just really want to speak to our community on this. We'll do a little uh, worship right after that, and then Pastor Dave will be um, continuing on Matthew 24. And at the end of the service, we'll again uh, pray over our country. And I just look at everything going on and knowing know that the Lord, uh, you know, man, he just wants to work through our church. And at the end of the day, it's about sin. You know, it's about sin gripping our hearts. Um, even if we had a perfect system, if racism is gripping our hearts, we would do racist acts. We would, we would create violence and chaos in our, in our lives and in the lives of others. But when the gospel grips our heart um, and calls us into family beyond our ethnicity and we treat each other like that, um, everything changes. Even in an imperfect system, the gospel allows us to, to love our enemies and to care for the people around us. I, at, to, as we move into worship, I just want to encourage us to sing and worship the Lord this morning. Um, the last two weeks, I haven't been here. I've been on vacation, but joined us online. And one thing that helped me is I just kind of crank up the volume on my TV all the way, crank up the speakers. And I think as we sing and worship the Lord, worship gives us perspective. It, it fixes our eyes on the Lord. I think that's been a struggle for me, right? And and for a lot of us, we've probably had our eyes on the news. We have our eyes on on Facebook posts and comments. We have our eyes on all these other things. And I think maybe one of the most powerful ways we can move into this time, move into uh, asking God for shalom and peace is to put our eyes on him. And when we sing and and sing loudly, it takes it takes us to that his throne room and allows us to, uh, yeah, put our hope and our eyes on the Lord this morning. So would you do that? Would you crank up the volume, uh, put it on your your television, you know, uh, hook up your speakers, and let's all worship this morning uh, together with Greg and Kelsey. Thank you so much, Greg and Kelsey. Really appreciate um, just being able to worship uh, this morning together in the middle of of everything. Like I said, for our service this morning, we're going to kind of have two parts to it. We want to sit down and really uh, hear and, and pray over what's going on in our country nationwide for George, George Floyd, um, just for the pain that the black community is experiencing and that all of us need to experience with them. Um, yeah, so, you know, for me, I think just kind of feeling a little lost, especially when it comes to social media. I was pretty vocal um, a few weeks ago, but this time I think there was like a, a Facebook hopelessness where I'm not sure what else there is to say. Um, the posts even from good friends, um, have I've read them before, and the fights on the comics comment sections have even felt repetitive. And as I as I thought about that, I just felt like for me, and I I would say for our church, um, social media has just a limited good. You know, it's good. It's caused a lot of a lot of change. It's put pressure on. Uh, the judicial system in ways that maybe they wouldn't have, have act prior. But but there's a greater good. I think that I would like our church to be 
to enter into. Because again, when I look at social media and, and how I respond to it, either I'm really for the comment, I'm liking it, I'm hearting it, I'm putting a thumbs up, or I, I want to yell back, or I see other people yell back at positions I disagree with. Or I unfriend people, you know, that I'm just really annoyed or triggered by. And I don't know of how much that's helpful. I, I haven't seen a lot of minds changed. I haven't seen a lot of positions shifted. I think people just get defensive and throw rocks or block uh, dissenting views, regardless of what side you're on. And as I prayed for our community, I wanted something different uh, for us. Because I know even in our church, we have people who have really different takes on Black Lives Matter, on uh, dis- on the protests and riots and on all, all that's going on. And, I, and this is the church that I want to help shepherd. And so, um, you know, one of the things I, I think we are gifted in that we can offer is relationship. You know, that might be the biggest difference between a Facebook post and a thousand comments and the conversations we can have at Renew that's encased in humility and love that's that's we're brought together as family across ethnicities one of the people that i've been most blessed by is eugene uh who's a black man and who's been in our community for a long time uh he's been setting up our basketball tournaments he's given a lot of people big hugs and i love him and he might be one of the most important voices uh for our church during this time and and as all of these things has happened and in our men's uh, family small group, I've just kind of been asking Eugene uh, how he sees it, what's going on in his soul. And as things unfolded in the last week, Jonathan and I, who, who's another uh, elder at Renew, called him up and just said, can you speak to our community on this? Where it's not just a YouTuber, it's not someone we don't know, but it's a brother, it's someone we've met and, and love. And I think we need to have conversations um, that are relational and that are family. Um, And that might be something I want to extend out to us as a community. Um, If you know someone who's, who's black, would you not talk to them over Facebook, but give them a phone call or zoom them and just hear their story and care for them? If, if there's someone that you've blocked on Facebook because they have such a different view, would you call them? Would you text them? And would you have a conversation built on the relationship you have with them? And I think that's how we move forward. And would if you're a Christian and someone who disagrees with you as a Christian, would you open the Bible together and, and come together as brothers who honor and cherish God's word and have conversations that are enlaced with trust and family and humility. As Eugene shares his heart with us, that's what I see here. I see a brother who's hurting, and I'm hurting with him because I love him. And as I love, I have a few black friends, but as I love um, Eugene, I love his ethnicity and his story because it's part of who he is. I think that's how we start bridging um, and loving and caring and bringing peace. It's, It's one relationship across culture at a time it's one story at a time where you care about someone who's not like you and then you care about his tribe and his family and his story Uh, i've always prayed for renew to be diverse because that's the gift of diversity is to have people you love um speaking into um things like this and so eugene it's an eight minute uh segment we asked him to be here but um, a little concerned over COVID, which totally makes sense. I just want you to know that we wanted him to share live. But I listened to his video this morning. I had to, I had to walk away because uh, I was just crying. And I found it so moving. Again, not because I haven't heard other people say what he says, but because he's my brother and I love him. And so would you just give yourself uh, to this moment and to our brother uh, in this community? After that, Jonathan and I will uh, lead us in in prayer, and he'll reflect a little bit as well, um, helping to shepherd and lead our church. Again, just so grateful for Eugene and um, him being a brother to us, him him and our family. Um, Jonathan's one of our elders at at Renew alongside of Pastor Dave. 
Um, and I just asked him to come and again, shepherd our community during this time, um, share a few thoughts. And um, he's just been such a advocate for diversity, uh, for social change, and has really handheld me as I've thought about these issues as well. And, and help me handhold our church in this being a continuing conversation for, for months now. And I think the Lord just kind of prepared us to be um, a voice during this, this time as well. So, yeah, we'd love just kind of hear a little bit about what's been on your heart and mind. And if you just kind of lead our congregation in prayer, we really appreciate that. Yeah, Wilson, thanks for the opportunity. <clears throat> um, my wife, Kristen, and I have been... Um, this is just an issue that's important to us. Um, we work uh, with college athletes, and um, <clears throat> I think as we as we do that, we see that there is um, a large percentage of our athletes that um, that are African American, that are Black, and that experience a lot of the things that Eugene shared. And Eugene, thanks so much for for what you just shared. Um, I think it's important for us as a church to hear from Eugene um, and to hear his perspective and also to feel sad and angry with him. Um, I, that's, it's important for, for me as a white man to, to lament with my brothers and sisters of color um, and to feel what they feel. Um, and that's, that's why we keep talking about this. That's why it's important for us to keep talking about as a church um, because this is a gospel issue. Um, it grieves God's heart. Um, there are systems set up in our country that disparage the image of God in people, in black men and women. And that's not okay. That's not okay. Um, it's, not a, it's not a political issue or an economic issue, but it's a, it's a gospel issue. Um, and we need to acknowledge that. When Wilson and I, Eugene mentioned, we, or Wilson mentioned, we talked to him on the phone yesterday. And um, man, just to give you one quick picture before we enter into prayer of what it's like to, to be a black man in this country. Eugene just shared, we asked him, hey, how's your week been? And of course, it's been a really rough week in general um, for him and his wife. But he said, on top of that, man, it's been stressful. Uh, our, our alarm malfunctioned earlier this week, and so the cops were called to come to our house to check it out. And when Eugene, you know, figured out that there were cops coming to his door, what, what he had to do was say, Shana, go in the back. Open up the back door. I'm going to answer the door, and if anything goes wrong, you just run and get out of here. Um and you know everything everything was okay he answered the door he said the cops were ready to go they had their hands on their hips but they were cordial he engaged with them and everything was fine but that reality should not be in our country that's not okay as a white man i don't even have to think about that and so it's important for us as a church to continue to engage on this issue and especially with our brothers and sisters of color. Um, you know, I, I think about Ephesians, where Paul talks about the armor of God, and he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And my friends, that's... That's what we are battling against. So as Wilson shared when we're on Facebook, remember, um, we're battling spiritual forces of evil. But Satan's greatest trick is to make us think that our battle is against flesh and blood against each other. So how do we pray? Um, we're going to enter into just a few minutes praying in our small groups. Um, and just a couple thoughts as we pray. I just want to encourage us um, to confess our corporate sin, um, that, you know, we're all complicit in, in these systems in some way. And it's okay if you don't feel that yet. Um, but just to maybe sit with the Lord and say, God, how am I complicit in this, in these systems and this racism that's present in our country? Um, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters of color, um, that they would know that they are valuable image bearers of God that they bear the Imago Dei, 
And so we need to pray that they would be affirmed this morning, that they would hear, hear that. And then as we pray too, just be thinking, how can I engage, as Wilson shared, with friends who may be experiencing some of these things similarly to Eugene and Shana? Um, so I'm going to put the mic down and just give us a few minutes as a small group just to pray together, maybe to be quiet, to lament together um, for a few minutes, and then we'll come back with one more song. Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and let's pray before we start the message. Father, we just want to come before you, and Lord, as human beings, as children created in your image, Lord, we, we ask for healing. We ask for you to come down and heal our land, to heal our country. And Lord, we pray that you would do your work and that your gospel would go forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, are you ready to be nerds one more time? Yeah. All right, I'm so excited. Uh, this is our final Sunday on the Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew chapter 24, and I hope this series has been enlightening for you. I know it's been difficult. I know that many of you, you've had to really dig deep to look in Scripture, and um, I know that as we looked at this, um, it was tedious at times, and it was also uh, probably uh, difficult, but I really believe the payoff is that it will strengthen our faith. And so one more time, what we want to do is we want to take off our 21st century baseball cap and put on what, I'm, what I have on, and I'm going to have this on permanently uh, for this message, to put on our first century Hebrew Sudra. Now, for those of you that are jo joining us for the first time, you've never heard of this, what we're doing is we are taking off the current culture and understanding of the 21st century, and we are putting on the ancient mindset of the first century, the culture and the understanding. And in that way, we get to read and really understand uh, what the original intent was, the original uh, audience of the day. So today's study will focus on the actual destruction of Jerusalem. And this was one of the worst uh, catastrophic events in the history of civilization. And so my goal this morning is not at all to glorify the destruction. I don't ever want to sound glib or cavalier about this episode in human history. And so I enter this teaching with true sadness and sobriety. And you know, I think it is even fitting that during this time is when I'm giving this message because sadness and sobriety, lament is something that we should have right now. Jesus' attitude was to weep and mourn for Jerusalem. He cried out with emotion and tears, even as he predicted this terrible judgment was surely going to take place. And so I want my posture to be that of my Lord's uh, seriousness and respectfulness as we look at this uh, of human history. But the goal of this study is for you to see that this prophecy was fulfilled exactly as Jesus said it would be. So let's look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that happened in 70 AD. If you're taking notes, like good nerds, right, uh, I want you, first of all, to write, uh, this was an actual and local judgment, right? Notice, this was an historical and local judgment. Let's look in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand then, excuse me, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go back down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to take his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. I want you to notice that this judgment was predicted as local to Jerusalem and specific to that generation in the first century. And the reason I emphasize is because this passage has been taught as an end time, end of the world judgment that encompasses the whole planet. But if you look at this, 
right? It's very local. It's very historic to first century Jerusalem. You see the word Judea. That was a local province during the Roman Empire. If you look at the word Sabbath, it affects the Jews. And I would even say, and I'll show you this later, it affects the Jews in the first century. Because when you think about it, Sabbath doesn't really affect us uh, today in the rest of the world. You look at rooftops, right? The word rooftops, that was local. And I would even argue, and later on I'll show this to you, uh, argue this to the first century. Because really, does anyone hang out on their rooftops today or in the world? How about the idea of running or fleeing to the Judean mountains as a way to escape a local judgment in that area? See, I'll reference these items later. But uh, I want us to look at what is the abomination of desolation, or literally the abomination that causes desolation. Right? Matthew is referencing something the Jewish audience would know as Daniel's prophecy concerning the future, specifically Daniel chapter 9. And so they would know the abomination of desolation was in the book of Daniel. Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews. So here we know that Matthew is trying to persuade the Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so they are looking at familiar uh, prophecies uh, that would be very familiar, familiar to the Jews. But in Luke's gospel, Luke was writing to the Gentiles. So he doesn't put Hebrew prophecy in his version of the Olivet Discourse. Instead, he just spells out what is the abomination of desolation. And in chapter 21 and verse 20, look at it. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. So the abomination is Rome's armies that surround the holy place Jerusalem, and this will eventually cause their desolation. So let's look at this prophecy. I think it's uh, fan, uh, fantastically interesting. And I want you to notice it's 500 years before the event actually happened. So in Daniel chapter 9, let's look at it in verse 26. You should have it up there. And the people of the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. Desolations have been decreed. Verse 27. And on the wing of the temple shall come the abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on the desolator. Did you read that? This is chilling when you realize that this prophecy is 500 years before the actual event of 70 AD. And see how perfectly it is fulfilled. It happens exactly how Dan Daniel says it would go down. It happens exactly as Jesus said it would go down. Now, I want you to look at this prophecy and notice the people of the prince. Do you see it? The people of the prince will do this. Let me explain this. This is fascinating. In 66 AD, the Jews rebelled against Rome. And so in 67 AD, Nero responds, the emperor responds, by sending his most celebrated general, Vespasian, to crush that uprising. So Vespasian, along with his son Titus, they go to Judea, that province, and they begin winning victory after victory. They begin systematically defeating the Jews. And just as Vespasian and Ch Titus were about to besiege Jerusalem, something unexpected happened in 68 AD. Nero commits suicide. And this plunges war, uh, Rome into civil war. And during this power vacuum where there was no emperor, three men, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, all vied for the throne. They wanted to gain permanency in becoming the emperor. Now, the siege of Jerusalem had to be put on hold uh, because of what was happening. Because unlikely Vespasian also decides to make his bid for the throne. And in the end, Vespasian becomes the emperor. And that was absolutely shocking at that period of time that Vespasian actually won the throne. It's like in Game of Thrones when Bran the Broken becomes king, not Daenerys Targaryen. Not Jon Snow, not Tyrion Lannister, not even the Night King becomes the king. The most unlikely person, Bran the Broken, becomes a king. And of course, season or that, that season was the worst season. Everybody hated it. But that was what it was like for Vespasian 
to take the Iron Throne in December of 69 AD. And his first order of business was to send his son Titus to finish what they had planned, to take Jerusalem. So Titus began besieging Jerusalem in 70 AD, four months after Vespasian becomes the emperor. Now, why is this interesting? Well, because Daniel prophesies that there is a prince leading the armies that will destroy the city and the temple and will desolate everything. Now, think about it this way. If Vespasian and Titus besieged it in uh, 68 AD and surrounded Jerusalem, this would not have been true, would it? Because they would have just been two generals. But Titus besieged Jerusalem in 70 AD where the unlikely Vespasian did become the emperor. So you know what that made his son Titus? It actually made him the prince of the people that destroyed Jerusalem. You see, God precisely fulfills the prophecies that he promises. I want you to notice the warnings are for an historic and local judgment. Verse 17, look at it. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Why? Because speed was of the essence. It was common back then for people to hang out on their flat rooftops. It was like their backyards. So when they saw Rome, right, begin to surround the city, then the idea is you have to flee quickly. Verse 20, look at it. Pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. Why is that? Because there were Sabbath laws back then. Jerusalem was ruled by religious leaders who enforced religious laws. And on the Sabbath, you were only allowed to walk a limited distance in the city. So think about this. If you tried to flee during that time, they would arrest and detain you for Sabbath breaking. You would miss your chance to escape the city. Verse 16, look at it. Let those... All right, everyone. We are going to go audio, uh, and we're not going to show video just for sake of uh, you being able to hear uh, the message. All right. So verse 16, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, why was that important? Well, Judea was a Roman province where Jerusalem was located. Jesus tells them that to escape the judgment means the moment that you see Roman legions begin to surround the city, flee to the mountains and don't trust the fortress to save you. Now, This warning was actually counterintuitive at the time. The walls of Jerusalem were considered impregnable. Herod built the walls in the city to successfully withstand any kind of siege. There was plenty of water. There was plenty of food uh, stores there. So this was, uh, for all intents and purposes, the safest place to be. Jesus was telling them to make yourself vulnerable to attack and to flee to the mountains. That wasn't conventional wisdom. Now think about this. When Titus attacked the city, it was three days before Passover. So all the pilgrims uh, that usually come every year were there in the city. All the refugees from the Jewish rebellion were there. And so the city swelled and became bloated with over a million people behind the walls. They trusted Jerusalem's fortress to protect them. Now in verse 13 it says, But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Remember I said I'd come back to this verse from last Sunday. Now you might ask why. Why would those who did not apostatize uh, be saved? Remember we talked about how persecution uh, uh, inflicted on Christians in the first century actually drove them to turn their backs on Jesus. And we talked about how they were tempted to apostatize, actually turn away from the new covenant, turn away from Jesus to the old covenant. Now here it says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Why is that? Well, because Christians are the only ones who believe Jesus' prophecy and warning. They obeyed Jesus and fled the city to the mountains, and they were the ones who were actually saved. Now think about this. Josephus records 1.1 million people died in the destruction of Jerusalem. And only a small remnant, several thousands, survived and were taken into slavery. But here's where I think it's very interesting. But there's no record of a single Christian who died in the destruction of Jerusalem. 1.1 million people died, yet 
Not one single Christian is recorded to have died. Why is this? Because they believed Jesus' warning and they fled and were saved. Eusebius, and I love this quote, Eusebius, the 4th century pastor and ancient historian, actually wrote this about this particular judgment. He says this, The people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by revelation to leave the city and to flee to the mountains. When those that believed Christ had left Jerusalem, then as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious people fulfilling Matthew's gospel regarding that generation. So here Eusebius records that Christians who stood firm to the end, believing Jesus' prophecy and warning, were ultimately saved. And by the way, there were many people during Rome's siege that actually tried to escape after the army had completely surrounded the city. And Josephus records that they were all caught and crucified. And there were so many crosses that they used up all the trees in that area. And they actually planted them again uh, in the uh, Mount of Olives so that when Josephus says he looked at the Mount of Olives, he saw a forest of crosses, if you can imagine. How terrible that was. Those that were uh, caught by the mercenaries, not the legions, but those that were caught by the mercenaries were disemboweled right on the spot. Elderly children, men and women were completely uh, disemboweled just in case they had swallowed valuables in their flight. How terrible of a time that was. Let's look in verse 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now you might ask, is that true? Now think about this. 1.1 million people were massacred in four short months. I'm an amateur historian, but I don't think that that kind of human loss in that short of time has ever been equaled in the history of civilization. The atrocities and the depths of suffering recorded, I can't even share with you because of how grotesque it was and how I want to be respectful of uh, the time period. But there is another reason why this will never be equaled again for the Jewish people. Uh, rabbi Perry Netter, a contemporary rabbi and Jewish leader, wrote something very interesting. Now, to be fair to him, he would not agree with any of this uh, as a Christian, right? He wouldn't agree with anything Christian. But he says something very important. He says this, The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the greatest catastrophe to happen to the Jewish people until the Holocaust of our own time. The temple was the center of economic life of the Jewish people, as if the Federal Reserve was housed in the Jewish temple. It was the center of judicial life, as if the Supreme Court was housed in the Jewish temple. It was the center of religious life, as if the high priest was the chief a rabbi centered in that building. And in a matter of hours, it was gone. When the temple was destroyed, everything was gone. And I want to underline, that's what Rabbi Netter said that really caught me. Everything was gone. In the history of the world, no nation has suffered a greater calamity. Now, when you think about the rabbi's words, and again, he's not going to agree with anything Christian. We understand that. It can never be equaled again because the Jewish people lost Old Testament Judaism. Now, you might say, that's not true. There's still Judaism today. But it's not Old Testament Mosaic Judaism found in the Bible. There's no temple to perform sacrifices that was destroyed. There's no genealogical records to show what tribe someone was from. There's no record to show who the priests are. That was destroyed. This means that there's no more animal sacrifices for atonement. The priests can't perform that. There's no means to forgive sin as outlined in the Old Testament. The Judaism of today is rabbinic Judaism. It's centered on the rabbis and on the synagogues. There isn't any more Mosaic Judaism of the Old Testament that was centered on the temple. And I would argue with you, the Jewish people can never go back to that again. Now let's look at this in verse 27 and 28. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even on the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the eagles will gather. Now some translations have vultures, but that's actually wrong. In the Greek, it's actually the animal is eagle. 
the Eagles will gather. Now, why am I making such a big deal about that? Well, here again, we see the preciseness of prophecy. Jesus likens Jerusalem to a dead carcass that's about to be picked clean. Total desolation. In verse 2, not one stone will be left upon another. And I want you to notice who he prophesies it will be. The lightning and the eagles. If we could still show a picture of the eagle standard. This was the Roman legion's most precious article because it identified who they, who they were. The Romans were actually eagles. That was the creature that uh, most identified with them. And so the standard was sacred to them. They worshipped the standard. It went with them to every battle. Every legion had an eagle standard. Now I want you to also notice that they carried with them every Roman legionnaire carried a shield or a scutum. Now, if we see the picture, it was almost a billboard of Romans' power and might. Notice the lightning bolts. Those are lightning bolts. And the eagle's wings. Those were the lightning bolts and eagle's wings of Jupiter. The, the legions carried these to advertise the judgment of Rome coming to destroy and conquer the enemy. So think about this. When Prince Titus came with Legion V Macedonica, Legion X Fratensis, Legion 12 Fulminata, Legion 5 Apollinaris, four legions with their auxiliaries and mercenaries that totaled 70,000 troops. They came from the east to the west bearing their trademark eagle standards and lightning shields to descend and to pick Jerusalem clean, fulfilling exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. Isn't that powerful? I want you to notice number two, that this was a prophetic symbolic judgment. Not only was it a historic local judgment, this was a prophetic symbolic judgment. Let's look in verse 29. It says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the land will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. Now here's where many of you will be tempted once again to put on your 21st century baseball caps. You're saying, come on, Dave, sun darkened, moon eclipsed, stars fall from the sky, heaven's shaken, Son of Man coming in the clouds, everyone's going to see him. How can you say that this was fulfilled in 70 AD? It's got to be the end of the world. Well, let's put our first century sudra back on right? This is the OG hat of the first century. By the way, you can't see me on video. I still have my sudra on. How would the original audience have heard this? Listen to me. To the Jewish listener in the first century, these signs in the sky were a figure of speech in the Old Testament. The celestial language is symbolic to governments. So sun, moon, and stars represent rulers, regimes, authorities, and power structures. The Bible uses this imagery for government powers. Let me give you examples. In Genesis 39, verse 7, Joseph has a dream. His dream is that the sun, moon, and stars bow down to him, right? And it was fulfilled where his family actually bow down his mother his father those authorities and also his brothers who were older than him those authorities but it also says it was fulfilled that the whole ancient near east all the ambassadors of that area came and bowed before fair before the vizier of egypt so that they could get grain it was fulfilled that the sun moon and stars bowed to him uh, daniel 8 and verse 10 daniel calls the babylonian nobles stars who were cast down and trampled upon, that the sun, moon, and stars, they were a symbol widely used in the ancient Near East. As a matter of fact, the luminaries were symbolic, not literal. Now, put on your uh, uh, Dodgers cap just for a second, okay? Because I want to show you this even in our culture today. Okay, just put on your baseball cap just for a second, okay? What do we call famous celebrities today? We call them stars, so if a news report says at an Oscar party, all the stars were out tonight drinking and celebrating, they're not actual stars. We all know in our culture that that symbolizes celebrities, right? Okay, put your sudra back on. Take off your baseball cap, okay? And we're going to keep looking. The eclipse of the sun, moon, and stars, the falling and shaking of the heavens means judgment on the governments, the toppling of kings, nobles, regimes, and nations. 
These were all symbols a Jewish audience would understand. Let me give you an example. If we uh, could show Isaiah chapter 13. Okay, let's look at it. This is the judgment on Babylon. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Listen to this. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty. This was about the fall of Babylon that was fulfilled in 539 B.C. Notice it's not about the end of the world. And by the way, this nation does not exist any longer, so it cannot be about a future judgment. Here we see that that nation and all of its authorities were toppled. God uses cosmic language to denote judgment. Look in Isaiah chapter 34. Would you, would you uh, show that? Isaiah 34, 4 and 5. This is the judgment on Edom. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved, and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. This was about the fall of Edom fulfilled in 587 BC. It's not about the end of the world. And again, the Edomites no longer exist. So it cannot be about a future judgment. God uses this language to show that their nation and their government was toppled. And it shows a judgment. Okay? Also, to the Jewish listener in the first century, the word coming on the clouds that Jesus uses was a figure of speech in the Old Testament. And it meant God was coming in judgment against someone or something. I want to show us Isaiah 19. Would you look at it? Isaiah 19. Here's what it says. An oracle concerning Egypt. See the Lord, Yahweh, right, rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Verse 3, the Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, mediums and the spiritists. What is this saying? That God comes on a swift cloud. He comes in judgment against ancient Egypt because of their idols, their occultic practices, and their various sins. See, I want you to think of this when we look at all this, as prophetic trash talk, all right? Have you ever played basketball, street ball? I've done that uh, all throughout my life. Basketball is one of my favorite sports. And when you play on a playground, you're always going to hear what's called trash talk. Now, in the 1980s, it wasn't as sophisticated. So I remember hearing some of these things. So I'm going to give it to you. It sounds kind of hokey, but remember, this is 1980s uh, trash talk, okay? So I heard, I'm going to rock your world, and you won't know what hits you, Okay? Or I'm going to eat you up and I'm going to spit you out. But they don't use the word spit. I'm going to eat you up and spit you out. You're going to get tomahawked. I heard a 6'5 guy actually tell me this. You're going to get tomahawked, okay? Or today we say he's going to break your ankles. Now, if you didn't know anything about playground ball and basketball, those sound like violent threats. Sounds like, sounds like cannibalism. Sounds like, what, you're going to bring weapons to the court, right? You're going to bring a tomahawk? You're going you're gonna to bring something to break my ankles, right? But we all know what this means. It only means that, hey, you're going to be defeated, and I'm going to embarrass you because I'm superior in playing basketball. It's not literal language. It's figurative language. It's trash talk, right? When Jesus said to the whole Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, 64, you will see me at God's right hand coming on the clouds of heaven, he was pronouncing judgment on them. And that's why they were so furious. When I was younger, I would read this, and I thought it was because, you know, he said he was the son of God, right? And they, they, they counted that blasphemy. But when you look in Scripture, one of the messianic titles for a Messiah was son of God. That wasn't the reason. If you look at the passage, it was because Jesus trash-talked them, right, prophetically. He said something that they would consider blasphemy. And the blasphemy was that God the Messiah would consider them enemies, that God would come against them. That was the reason. So when the original audience heard 29 through 30, they heard what they had grown up hearing in synagogue all their life. They heard Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos 
and Joel and Obadiah and Daniel. They all prophesied with that same judgment language. Jesus the Messiah was pronouncing it now on Jerusalem. Okay, let's look in verse 30. All the tribes of the land will mourn. Some translations put nations of the earth, but that's not actually correct. The correct uh, interpretation would be the tribes of the land. Now, I recognize that this phrase changes actually the whole perspective from global to local, right? And that's why I'm bringing it up. It's meant to be local to Israel, not only because of the language, but how do I know this? Because Matthew is revealing to us another messianic prophecy. Remember, Matthew is speaking to the Jews, so he's trying to convince the Jews, so he gives them prophecy after prophecy that Jesus fulfills. This is another prophecy that Jesus fulfills at his coming in judgment. And it's found in Zechariah chapter 12. Would you put that up? In verse 11, let's look at it. It says, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great. Verse 12, the land shall mourn each tribe by itself. The tribe of the house of David by itself. The tribe of the house of Nathan by itself. The tribe of the house of Levi by itself. The tribe of the house of the Shimeites by itself. And all the tribes that are left by itself. Matthew is conveying that all Israel, tribe by tribe, will bitterly mourn in the destruction of Jerusalem because this judgment comes as a direct result of breaking covenant with the God of their fathers by rejecting and crucifying the Messiah that he had sent to them. This was not a judgment on future generations. This was a judgment specific to their generation alone. Let's look in verse 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This is one of my favorite verses that Jesus gives. This verse sounds so much like cosmic end-of-the-world uh, stuff, but I want to unpack this and look at it in its parts. Remember, a lot of what Jesus is saying is symbolic, and it's true to what they understand, okay? The word angel actually means messenger. So regardless of the origin, if it's a heavenly being or an earthly being, it's the context which determines if they're heavenly or earthly. So the word angel in the New Testament can refer to human preachers of the gospel. Matthew 11.10, speaking of John the Baptist, it says, And I will send my angel ahead of you. Luke chapter 9.52, speaking of Jesus' disciples, And he sent his angels on ahead. Revelation 1 through 3, uh, talking about the pastors in Asia Minor, it says to the angels of the seven churches. So what Matthew 24, 31 is saying is that Jesus will send his messengers out. Now look at the phrase with a trumpet, with a loud trumpet call. Everyone knew in that culture what that meant. It meant to announce a royal decree. So trumpets were always meant to announce, not to entertain. Today it's to entertain. Back then it was to announce. The word gospel I don't know if you ever knew this before, is not original to the Christians. They borrowed it from Rome. It was actually the good news of the empire. That's really what the gospel meant originally. When Rome arrived into a new area of their empire, they would announce it with trumpet call, the good news, declaring that Caesar was savior, and they were blessed to be a part of Rome's empire. They would receive civilization. They would receive protection they would receive all of the benefits of Rome. That, would, that was what the gospel was. It was good news of the empire. And here we see Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31, Jesus' messengers will announce a royal decree, right? And look at the phrase, they will gather his elect. Or they will, yeah, they will gather his elect. This means the act of gospel evangelism. The elect are those that are called to be God's children. They will be gathered, reaped, harvested. They will go and gather all of the elect. And the phrase is from the four winds. That's an Old Testament reference to the entire planet. When you wanted to talk about the entire planet, you said from the, uh, the four winds. It's no longer uh, oikumene. It's now the entire planet, right? You've heard the four corners of the earth. That's the idea. Now, what was Jesus saying in the context? And we've been going through this study for three Sundays, okay? Let me say it this way. The last vestiges of the old cocoon are gone. The old age with its temple and mosaic system have passed away. The old covenant laws, rules, and symbols are no longer needed. There's no longer a confusing, conflicting competitor to the new covenant anymore. 
Jesus is the prophesied king. He ushers the long prophesied new covenant along with his long awaited new kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, by the way, to bring a completely new age. And this is expressed in the worldwide announcement and spread of the gospel to the entire globe. God's messengers go forth with the gospel to gather all the elect from all ethnicities across the whole planet. And by the way, after Jerusalem's desolation, the Christians who escaped didn't have a home to go back to. They were sent to other parts of the world, no doubt sharing their deliverance and the gospel message. Verse 35, heaven, and by the way, I'm skipping some because this would take too long if, if, if I didn't skip others. Verse 35, but this is the part I want you to catch at the end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the last phrase in Jesus giving us signs of the Olivet Discourse. Now, we have used this last verse as a proverb. It fits very well on a plaque or a bumper sticker. I've even seen them on bumper stickers. But you know, it actually means something more in this context. What Jesus was saying was heaven and earth will pass away. Do you know heaven and earth was a moniker for the temple? It was a nickname for the temple. The Jews of that time would know exactly what this was in reference to. The temple was called heaven and earth because it was the place where heaven met earth in the Jewish mind. The temple was where man would go to meet with God. This is where God's glory resided. This is where God promised to dwell with his people. The temple was the place where the priest ministered the sacrifices to atone for sins and to give forgiveness or receive forgiveness. The temple was where true worship was accepted. It was heaven and earth. And that is why Jesus declares the end of heaven and earth. This temple and its system will pass away. Why? Because Jesus is the temple. This building foreshadowed Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is where heaven meets earth. He is where men will go to meet with God. He is where the Shekinah a glory of God uh, will reign forever. He is the one who dwells with his people forever. He is the final sacrifice for sins and forgiveness forever. He is where true worship is accepted by God forever. The temple, or this temple, excuse me, will never pass away. You see, the old covenant temple will pass away brick by brick, stone by stone, not one upon another, all will be thrown down. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy, or that prophecy is fulfilled. But what Jesus declares, what he promises, will always remain. It will always be fulfilled. You can bank on every one. All his promises are yes and amen. And what Jesus is saying is, <clears throat> excuse me, his words will not pass away. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. I don't know what to do next. Should I pray? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we had. And despite the tribulations with uh, the sound and everything else, Lord, uh, we know that um, your word is something that we hungered for and we desired. And Lord, we pray that it would speak to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.